On this Tell Me More episode of Tell Me What You Know, we are joined by Pete Mara to continue our discussion on The Cat Wars. Pete is the director of the Georgetown Environment Initiative and the author of The Cat Wars. His research and writing was the source of my information on this topic when I covered it in episode 38, in case you missed it. So I'm very excited to chat with him. For those who don't know, The Cat Wars is about shedding light on the fact that owned, unowned, and feral cats are wreaking havoc on bird, mammal, and reptile populations in North America and around the world. These cuddly killers also spread disease that can impact local wildlife as well as humans. The confrontations occur when animal rights activists and environmentalists discuss how to handle this complicated issue. No matter the best way forward, we want you to have all the facts, because this is Tell Me What You Know. Hello, we're here with Pete Mara. You go by Pete, right? Go by Pete. Yeah. Go by Pete. Yeah, I think yeah. in my emails I've been calling you Peter. Yeah, Peter just sort of reminds me of my mother yelling at me, so <laughs> definitely prefer Pete. Well, uh, Pete is the author, one of the, the authors of The Cat War. We touched on The Cat War in one of our previous episodes, and this has really become an interesting topic for me. Having uh, I adopted two cats two years ago. Sort of my interest was piqued with... Uh, you know, watching them and and then and then hearing about this issue, uh, really, uh, you know, really piqued my interest for it. Uh, yeah. When did the when did this topic really come up for you? I know this might not be your main focus, but maybe more the the bird focus or ornithological focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When did this really come up for you? So when I moved to DC in 1999, mm-hmm. um, I live in Tacoma Park, and moved to the DC area to start working for the Smithsonian. I uh, I had spent my entire life trying to get away from people, like you know I would go to the deepest darkest parts of the Amazon and or the highest mountains I could possibly get to to get into the deep forest or way out in the oceans, to connect with wildlife and connect with nature. That's what I've always done ever since I was six years old. I was really sort of attracted to nature and searching for salamanders or whatever it happened to be. Birds are eventually what um, totally mesmerized me, but I'm still, I consider myself a natural historian. So when I moved to D.C. in 99, it became clear, now that I'm living in an urban environment, you know, surrounded by people, um, I need to start thinking about conservation issues in these settings and start to study something called urban ecology. How do, how do people in nature get, get along? And the, sort of the ironic thing is that people are part of nature. And... Um, but if we hope to sort of restore these areas and bring people back to nature, then we need to study them in these settings and understand how we re- can restore these areas so they're good for people and for nature. And so I started a project called Neighborhood Nest Watch, where we go into people's yards and we bring them outside and we show them how we catch birds, we show them how we ban birds, put little color bands on their legs so they can actually see a cardinal that comes to their feeder or a song sparrow and they see these unique combination of color bands on their legs, so they might be a yellow band on the one leg and an orange over an aluminum band on the right leg. And um, when they see that, they're connecting with an individual. And so it's not just a cardinal anymore, it becomes an animal that they put a name on, a wild animal. And so we've over time discovered that this was a really interesting way to get people to connect back with nature. Uh, and we studied that, but we also started studying other aspects of the urban ecosystem. And one of those things, when you start to study the urban ecosystem, you realize it is dominated by a lot of invasive things, non-native things, things that weren't meant to be there. Everything from plants, and we could talk about that in another podcast, but it's, it's you know, the horticultural industry has changed the vegetative 
the surroundings of where we live in urban environments for a variety of reasons. But you also see things like Norway rats and you see things like cats. Mm-hmm. Cats in particular, uh, and Norway rats, but cats in particular are found nowhere in nature, naturally, domestic cats. They are a domesticated species like a pig or a cow or a horse. Uh, and when they go into these situations, not due to any fault of their own, they do things in those situations which are negative, have negative consequences to that situation. So we started studying this, and um, that's how we that's how we got involved with this. And we started to realize that this was a much bigger deal than we thought. And we did a local study on the impacts they were having on on the success of nestlings that would fledge. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we started to think about this thing more broadly and started to scale it up to try to understand how much mortality there actually was. And that sort of got me engaged in the bigger issues. And so I realized that part of it was a marketing issue. Right. Yeah. You pointed out a few studies that went back, I mean, a good bit. I mean, late 1800s and even 1900s, people were kind of commenting on this aspect of cats that were real predators in and specifically for birds, but also for mammals and, and the like. Uh had this been something that you had kind of heard about people talking as you were coming up, but then really once you focused on it, um, you became kind of aware of the larger issue? Yeah, 100%. I, I definitely was, I had nothing against cats. Right. Yet per se. I, I knew it was an issue, but there are lots of issues out there. And I look at all these issues, habitat loss, you know, disease. Mm-hmm. I've worked on all these issues and I continue to work on all these issues. And so it was, it was just when I started to dig in and we started to look at the research that we realized this was a much bigger issue than we thought, and this is one thing that we can potentially control, unlike something like climate change. Mm-hmm. One uh, large aspect of the book that I've, I found interesting was sort of the the methods for uh, estimating the mortality of, of how much cats are actually killing in our in our environment. Has anything changed with that over the last few years since you'd published, or, or has anything... No, not really. No. You know, uh, it's... The reason why there's such a range from 1.3 billion birds to 4 billion birds is because of the error associated with it, mm-hmm. right? So, but we do this all the time in the back of our minds. You know, we, we estimate the amount of gas that it might take to drive to right. Florida if mm-hmm. you want to go on spring break. It's like, what's, what's this going to cost? My car gets this many miles per gallon. I, uh, um, gas costs this much per gallon on average. So you do some back of the envelope estimations and you can figure that out. We went a few envelopes deeper than that, and we basically uh, built a model using some of the best data out there, best available data, and came up with a range. That's a big range, 1.3 to 4 billion. But yeah. for Christ's sake, 1 billion birds? Right. It's a lot of damn birds. And it's, it's, it's not just birds. It's mammals. It's reptiles. It's insects. Um, and it's totally within reason. It's totally within reason. Right. Well, and the mammal aspect of things, too, that uh, I'd kind of heard some, not necessarily pushback, but when I told people that we were covering this, I think the one aspect that they told me was, uh, oh, well, I'm fine with them killing rats. Like, go kill rats, go kill mice, kind of, like, I don't like them anyways. Did Was this something you'd kind of heard from the population of people kind of pushing back at sort of the sentiment of why they might be okay with still having cats roam around? Yeah, there's a misconception that cats control, because they do control other species. They do negatively impact other species. So it does make sense for people to kind of think, well, they'll, they'll control rats too. Turns out they don't control rats. There have been at mm-hmm. least a couple really good studies, right, in, actually in Baltimore, where they've shown that they'll, they'll kill young rats, but they actually don't kill that many adult rats. Mm-hmm. And so 
no exterminator that's worth their salt would ever recommend putting cats out to control rats. And yet that's what a lot of these animal groups are actually doing. They're actually formalizing this process. And they're calling it working cats and blue-collar cats. Right. And they're putting cat colonies in places. But it's, it's really just a ruse to, to save cats, save cats' right. lives, so right. to speak. Yeah. yeah. Did you have something you wanted? Well, right. I, <clears throat> you, you just mentioned that uh, I, I assume you don't have anything against cats. This is all just the study, obviously. But have you gotten any kind of blowback from... I guess from the communities around, like people who love cats, thinking you're out to get them or something like that, or is this just yeah, blowback's probably not the right word. Okay, uh, massive attacks. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, it's this is this is death threats, multiple death threats, and that and this, I'm not alone. You know, other colleagues of mine that have, that have worked on this before me, uh, this uh, colleague Stan Temple uh, has definitely had death threats. I've had death threats. Um, people view this as a life and death situation. They this think is, you're out to get rid of all cats. Essentially, they think or, I'm out to get rid of all cats, and. Huh. And um, I do want all outdoor cats removed from the landscape. I, I mm-hmm. really do. The question is how. And that phrase is, you know, I, we, in the book we said we want cats removed by any means necessary. However, but they stopped there. They didn't, okay. they didn't use the rest of the sentence. Yes. Uh, one guy in particular uh, from Colorado who's just this, you know, rabid animal rights mm-hmm. activist, um, took that out of context and used that to sort of attack me multiple times by any means necessary. Because we, we go on and we say, but that's a difficult thing to do, basically, because that would, what are you going to do with the animals once you catch them? Right. Da, 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 da. It was a lead-in. And so uh, it was um, it was taken out of context. Okay. The, the ironic thing is, I'm an animal rights advocate, too. Sure. That's what, But it's the whole animal rights movement has gone off into the deep end, in my opinion. Well, you see... Animal rights for all animals, not just for these cats. 100%. Right. It's an ecosystem uh-huh. that we've got to save, and it's all the species in this ecosystem. It's not just a cat-focused thing. Okay. And that's what these groups like Alley Cat Allies and Best Friends and these individuals out there like this guy Peter Wolf, they're just cat-focused. Okay. That's it. But we cannot approach our current problems that way. Sure. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, that was another sentiment that I had kind of taken or, or even felt with having two cats that live indoors I'm like oh wouldn't it be great to see them go outside and kind of live up to their true identity of hunting and I feel like that was some other kind of sentiment that might be permeating these people's focus about I want to let my cat go roam and and do whatever it it innately knows how to do but um, I mean obviously realizing it's a full predator I mean it 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 does have real instincts to just go kill and kill not necessarily to, to eat that's right. That's right. They they definitely will kill even if they've already been fed. Um, they don't kill as much as uh, an unowned cat, but um, they definitely continue to kill. Mm. And one of the interesting things, one of these hypotheses that I have is that because we've become disconnected with nature in so many ways, because we live in a built environment in so many ways, letting your cat outside in some ways to me is almost a replacement for a natural experience for people mm. because they can sort of see this animal going outside and praying it's almost like they're watching a, a, a line on tv going to right pray, but it's the real life thing yeah and so it's it's sort of acting as this wildlife experience um but we know, know no, that's a problems. that's a very interesting perspective on it because i i do feel that connection i'm living i mean we live in such an urban environment and you do yearn for more nature and seeing them you know even jump off a bed is not a real nature, natural experience. Right. But uh, then, no, that's a really interesting perspective. Yeah, and you know, it's one of the reasons why we have feather toys and, mm-hmm. and you know, 
uh, laser pointers and, and why can't, why we you know love teasing the cat it's it's these behaviors that are fun to watch I like watching them I mean I I, mm-hmm. lo- I mean I would love to go out and watch not a cat but a bobcat mm-hmm. do a real you know predatory uh-huh. thing but that's a natural thing that's happening and bobcats are at much lower densities and their impacts they can live in equilibrium with other species we have artificially elevated this total invasive species in these natural environments, so their impacts are disproportionate. And it's that disproportionate impact that has turned out to be a big, big problem. Well, you'd mentioned in the books figuring out if the counts that you had estimated were additive or or just you know compensating for another form of, of death. At those levels, wouldn't I kind of felt like they had to have been additive. That I don't know how many... So, so the 1.3 to 4 billion birds you can't put into that context right. because it's, it's not a species level. It's just total bird. I wish we could dig down deep into each individual species mm. and, and look at the population size of that individual species and then look at the mortality. Um, we don't have enough information with that assessment. But there have been individual studies that have looked at this question of additive versus compensatory. And let me explain what that means so your listeners mm-hmm. really understand that. Yeah. They're not very smart, so that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> Don't rely on me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, it's a, it's a complicated, complicated uh, uh, concept, so it's really important to understand. So um, there is additive mortality, which basically means, um, or compensatory mortality, which means that animals can compensate for different types of mortality that might be out there. And so they can reproduce more individuals to compensate for that mortality mm-hmm. and maintain their population size. If it's additive mortality, that means it's another form of additive mortality that over time will continue to cause that population not to stay at the numbers that they're at, but it will slowly decline over okay. time. And so they can't compensate for that mortality. And so that's the fundamental question here that you know we want to understand. And what the cat advocates would say was that, is that it's, it's compensatory. So they're just taking the young and the weak, the ones that would die anyway. and Calling um, the herd. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, but it turns out that's not true. In okay. fact, to the point of which there's 63 species that cats have contributed to the extinction of. And hmm. an extinction is the ultimate form of compensatory mor- or additive right. mortality. Right. Sorry, um, it's, it's when that animal species goes to zero. Mm-hmm. Many of those were in islands. They're not all birds. They're birds, mammals, and lizards, um, reptiles. And so, and they do this on a regular basis to animals in mainland areas too. And even though that species isn't, hasn't, maybe didn't go extinct, it's not about extinction. It's about loss. And when we start to depress these populations further and further from a variety of mul- multiple causes, we're losing ecosystem services. We're losing a variety of things that many people value in nature. And that's not okay. It's not okay for our generation. It's not okay for future generations that, you know, we're already leaving the earth a really crappy place for future generations. We need to do all we can to try to repair what we've done. You mentioned uh, some of the efforts in Australia and uh, a philanthropist in New Zealand. Uh, One of the goals they had set that you mentioned in the book was they wanted to I think have the amount of cats living in the wild in Australia by 2020. I, th- I might be forgetting that, but so, I was wondering if, if, yeah, what update there is there. Because of you know these big island areas, mm-hmm. and Australia is essentially a really big island. It's a right. continent, but it's a really big island. Um, they've seen the damages done by invasive species of a variety of in- invasive species, and so they started this thing called the Two Million Cat Cull. Uh, and they're doing all they can to remove cats by euthanasia. And they're doing it in a variety of ways because it's a, it's a really challenging situation. 
And the other the other piece here is that we when we think about this, it has to be. It's not like a one and done thing. It's a constant management problem. We have to continually manage this issue. In New Zealand, you know, um, they've got there are no native mammals except for bats in in New Zealand, hmm. and so they've now got lots of invasive mammals and they've lost lots of species. They I don't know if they've actually put out any kind of a uh, edict on cats there, other than they might need to stay inside. Uh, but in Australia, they've had enough. Enough is enough. They've seen this. And I'm hoping that other parts of the world will start to follow that lead, um, especially when you look at it. You know, it's not just cats. In places like Australia, you know, they're losing species to fire, to climate change. And it's this, right. these multiple and interacting <clears throat> things that are really creating problems. I had read that the, the wildfires there recently had kind of, you know, cats were traveling t- 10, 20 miles to now go kill new new. Yeah new animals yep. uh, and that was something that had kind of come out of of those fires too yeah um yeah the, the one of their methods was the poison kind of the i'll call it a poison pill kind of like kangaroo meat wrapped in this poison has any of those things been even tried in the united states yet or is it not in the mainland no yeah. no there's not um you know there's not a lot of effort that's supported uh, by agencies or other groups to cull cats mm-hmm. through euthanasia, mm-hmm. um, and just to be clear, there's you know there's two main problems here. There's three main problems. There there are the owned cats that people let outside, free ranging right. owned cats. Then there are the unowned cats that uh, are typically fed at stations, and these might be trap neuter return colonies, where people trap them, they bring them in, they neuter them. They think they're doing good because they're stopping their reproduction. They bring them back out and they continue to feed them. So you get these concentrations of cats that still disperse all over the place. Then you have truly feral cats. Feral really means that there's no dependence on humans in any way whatsoever. And um, we have no clue how many truly feral cats they are. We do know, and I've been told by people in the National Park Service, for example, that in our national parks there are a minimum problems on 40 national parks. Wow. I'm working on a, on, a, on a couple of different situations there. But the, um, uh, the, the cat issue in these different situations is very complex. So with the own cats and how we, how we manage this, with the own cats, we just need to get cities and counties and states to better regulate this, but they're not. They've really stopped managing this issue. They've closed down or shut or really reduced their animal control facilities, and they're giving out contracts to a variety of groups that are advocacy groups, essentially, hmm. animal welfare organizations hmm. that have really strong issues that they support, like no-kill stances, mm-hmm. which is fundamentally a problem. Mm-hmm. And they take that to the unowned cat populations as well. And this whole no-kill movement, while it sounds really good, and there's a lot of celebrities that support it, and, you, and the pet food companies, you know, billion-dollar companies that support this because it's in their best interests, right. it creates these fundamental problems. Right. Well, in the face of it, it's easy to get behind, you know, don't kill. But it, you, you, you'd kind of mentioned in the book... Uh, not killing them is, is is even is worse for their population. It's worse for them as a species. It's actually the you know with some form of of killing requires some suffering, and almost we have to do the suffering on behalf of the species in some ways. Yeah, no, that's really true. I mean, yeah. I don't have any desire to no. kill a cat. Yeah, I mean, it's the last thing I want to do. Exactly. Yeah. This is you know, despite what you might read in the uh, mm-hmm. funny papers about me, it's really not true. And there are funny papers about me, by the way. There's comics on the wall. I'll take a look at it before you <laughs> yeah. leave. Yeah. And so, um, 
yeah, that's the last thing I want to do. And I, you know, I don't know if I could do it, frankly, but there are people that do this sort of work. It is a harsh reality of the situation. And, um, it's, it's a lack of information that's, that's not getting out there that, um, is feeding into this this whole no-kill movement. It's really unfortunate. Right. And we haven't even touched on the disease aspect of, of cats. And I was really, I mean, the Toxoplasma gondii kind of freaked me out. Of just yeah. the rates of, of, of levels that it exists in the population is absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's three, billion people, 3 billion people around the world are thought to be infected with, with Toxo. Uh, about 20% in the U.S., somewhere around 20%, 15 to 25% I've heard, depending upon where and, and the age group. Uh, as you get older, it's obviously... Mm-hmm. Do you think it's pretty likely that he's infected with his two cats? <laughs> uh, I would say so, especially with the whole mind control aspect they have yeah. going on. Well, he convinced oh, you yeah. to do this podcast. Think, right? <laughs> that's true. That's true. That was before I knew. Yeah. Now I'm and stuck. Are they outdoor cats? Uh, have they been? So they've been adopted. So at one oh. time, they, they were, I think, out, outdoors when they were kittens. Yeah. Um, so they could absolutely have been... Yeah, so they exposed. they would have been if they were exposed, they could have been infected at one point for about a week. So what happens is once a cat gets infected, it will sh- it could shed oocysts for a week or two, but uh-huh. millions of oocysts into the environment, and um, then they'll pat they'll sort of move beyond that infection. But they can get infected again. So yeah, this was one aspect that I wasn't fully clear on. So yeah, they become infected, shed the oocysts for a period of time, and then they can they could be infected again, or it could have like a new yeah. Okay. They need. This is something that's that's been recently discovered. But they need huh. to be exposed to it again. So if they're mm. indoor cats, that you could carry an oocyst in your shoe or something like that. But the chances of that happening are are minimal. Mm-hmm. But this is a big enough issue that the entire you know uh, um, U.S. and Canada and most most developed countries yeah. have known about this to the point where they warn pregnant women not to change kitty litter boxes, not to go out and garden. Not to garden. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. of the risk of being exposed to an oocyst from a cat um, and to eat cooked meat, for example. So the way most people get this is through undercooked meat. This is what people, this is, this is what people uh, uh, pre- presume. But that's still ultimately from cats. One of the pushbacks I get from the cat groups because they, many of them don't understand the science or the, or the parasitology here, is that it ultimately comes from cats. It, Toxoplasma gondii is a protozoan parasite that sexually reproduces only in the guts of cats. It gets exposed to an animal. That animal enters the food chain, our food chain, and like lamb or pork, vegetables, and it's not cooked or not washed, and those oocysts are then ingested, and it's then in our system. Different people, depending upon your susceptibility to that, if you're immunocompromised or whatever it mm-hmm. might be, or if you're pregnant, you might have different impacts. You could have a miscarriage if you're pregnant, your child, your, your unborn fetus could be impacted from some other disease uh, issue. Uh, or that oocyst could just implant in your brain and cause more subtle things over time. Mm-hmm. Things like schizophrenia are now linked yeah. to it, depression, bipolar disorder. There's a whole suite of things. Uh, and so, and you know, most environment, most of our mental health issues, a variety of things, are caused by environmental issues, um, like diseases, like zoonotic pathogens, like coronavirus. Right? I mean, that right. is from animals. So none of this is surprising to biologists who study this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it. That was one aspect that I was really freaked out by, and even the numbers. I think it's it's almost so daunting to have to deal with it. It almost seems like you could you could 
be infected with an oocyst just by yeah going to dinner and just eating something that wasn't cooked right the chef has a cat or something yeah um and and kind of touching on what we had talked about earlier with thinking that cats are going to go out and kill a, a mice or something or a rat they could pick up as you mentioned in the book of the black plague and then carry it and then infect a human from there yeah and it's not like it's a big worry the plague right but there are cases every year of someone getting the plague from cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we can treat it. So it's it's, right. it's uh, not like we're in the 15th century dealing with massive mortality. However, rabies is, an, is a concern, mm-hmm. you know, as well. Dogs used to be the number one domesticated species to uh, get rabies. Now it's cats. We got the dog thing under control. You know, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, dogs used to roam free. Dogs mm. used to have rabies. They, but we got leash laws. We had, we started to say, you know, you can't be stray dogs uh, and, and got that under, under control. Now with cats, cats are now, when they go to feeding stations, they interact with raccoons, foxes, other, mm. other species. Raccoons are one of the main focal species to carry rabies. So there's a lot of transmission to cats, and it's just a matter of time, and it's happened before in other parts of the world, before someone's going to get rabies from a cat interaction at a feeding station. Mm-hmm. And once you get rabies, once you're exposed, if you're not getting, if you don't get those, those shots immediately, um, and you, all of a sudden you start to develop symptoms, lights out. Right. Wow. Uh, on the dog point, what, what changed in the 70s and 80s that made the U.S. really take that, that issue under their... You know, really made it a focal point of our of our people were being control. bitten by dogs. Mm-hmm. Dogs themselves were getting hit by cars. Dogs were the number one way to get rabies, mm-hmm. um, and so we started to regulate it. We required licensing. We required rabies shots. We can vaccinate for rabies. Uh, we required leash laws. We started to realize that these companion animals it's it's an irresponsible pet ownership to just expect these animals to roam out there on their own. That uh, just doesn't make sense. You can't just kick open your door and let your dog go outside. But yet, that's what we now do with cats. Mm-hmm. We just kick open our door and let our cat outside, and that cat goes over to a neighbor's bird feeder and just kills all these birds of a neighbor, and that's what creates these cat wars. Right. Those cat wars that, you know, that title, Chris and I came up with that title because these cat wars occur between neighbors. I deal with this all. People email me all the time. What do I do about this? They occur with people and these colonies they you know between bird groups and cat groups it's multiple scales mm-hmm. cities you know the cdc does recognize that toxo for example is one of the worst foodborne illnesses that we're dealing with mm. but there's no money to put towards battling this issue right and they don't want to face the wrath of animal rights activists right you'd mentioned the uh, wisconsin vote that did pass but then they just Yep. didn't pursue it they just knew it was going to be too much of a hot button issue yeah i mean it's this is true not just with the cat issue unfortunately it's this this apathy and this lack of movement around environment and around nature is a much broader disease that's global yeah interesting and kind of bizarre I, in the book i kind of wanted and we, you kind of hear about uh you know not being very educated on different types of, of bird species and sort of how they affect the whole ecosystem. But I'd kind of, I'd seen what had happened in Yellowstone with the reintroduction of the wolf and kind of from that perspective, I can understand introducing such a predatory animal back into something that then, then cascades down the rest of the ecosystem. Yeah. But could you touch on 
sort of just the importance of each species in an ecosystem and how it it helps perpetuate a healthy environment. Yeah, and so, and just to be clear, this is a healthy de- environment that humans are completely right. dependent on 100% as well. And so birds provide enormous numbers of really critical ecosystem services. This is one way to think about it. I think about this in multiple ways, but mm-hmm. there are these really important ecosystem services that these bird, birds provide that you know, they've evolved in these systems over thousands of years. And so they do everything from seed dispersal to pest control. When you remove birds from an area, or if you put a, an enclosure around a tree, that tree doesn't grow as fast or as well because those birds remove all the caterpillars that, if they're on there, from that tree. And so um, they provide an important service. It's almost a coevolution with that tree to allow that tree to continue to grow. That tree provides enormous numbers of ecosystem services for us. Pollination, you know, all these things are fundamental things that our forests, our habitats need. So there's that side of things, these ecosystem services that are, we know they're there. They're hard to really quantify. So they're hard to convince people because people don't see them or know them that these things exist. But there's another side of this that I really also emphasize. It's in part because I grew up since I was six years old valuing birds. But each one of these bird species is a Van Gogh. It's a, it's, it's a Monet. It's a Homer. Whoever your favorite artist is, it's, it's, these are valuable pieces of of art they're they are priceless we can't just like you know some of the the most incredible art that we've seen out there that uh, some of our incredible artists created no artist created you know the passenger pigeon yet we lost this incredible natural piece of natural history that is should be something we value just like we value art in fact we should value it more than we value that art Mm -hmm. and we should feel Mm -hmm. a responsibility to protect these species just like we protect art in museums or whatever it happens to be it's our natural history not just our art history that we should be thinking about yeah and so it's those it's so i think they're priceless um, in the same way that some of these other things that we value are priceless not because they just perform a service and we need that service what's the utility yeah it yeah. doesn't always have yeah. to be i think there's a real danger in thinking about things and just in terms of their value and the utility there's a much bigger value here and um that's how we have to think about this hmm. Not just for us, but for our kids and their kids and for future generations. It's completely selfish of us to sort of yeah. ignore these things and just meet our own needs, not just through the cat issue, but through habitat destruction, through climate change. This is a bigger, much bigger issue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we had uh, a, a birder on uh, one of our last episodes. Do you, are you into bird watching at all, I assume? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of, one of Michael's good friends who works for the Park Services here, I mm-hmm. believe, uh, he's... He's like a top 1,000 birder, according to eBird on the yeah. He's technically in the top 900, but we gave him top 900. Top 1,000 sounds better. Interesting. So What's his name? Robert, Robert Mako. Mako. Robert no, no. Mako. Yeah. 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 You guys should meet. I feel like uh, oh, yeah. you'd have a lot to talk about. Yeah. But he had the sentiment, too, of, <laughs> of you know, seeing some you know, common species is just as, as interesting to him as seeing some you know, predator, predator California species California that you've got to go yeah. really hunt down. but. He says he goes on ten or fifteen trips a year. Just, oh, he's just sure, to see. Yeah. yeah, he's a real, a real birder. But yeah. it, it's, it's always great to see people who are just passionate about anything. Yeah, and that rubs off on anybody. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by all means, it's yeah. uh, finding a passion is is a gift. I feel really lucky that I was able to sort of find my passion at a very early age. So despite you know going into a variety of very dangerous areas as I was growing up. Um, some would say I never grew up, but I was always That's the brought, dream. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> brought back to center because of my passion for nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. What are you working on now? 
I'm working on a lot of things. So I'm directing this program here at Georgetown called the Georgetown Environment Initiative, which mm-hmm. is uh, an effort to bring environment sustainability research and teaching and action across the entire university because of the things we've just talked about. Uh, to the med school, to the law school, to, to the biology department, to the business school. It's really about building this environmental ethic and ethos all around these these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, and I'm working on you know a variety of migratory bird things. I continue to work on bird bird issues. You know, I just had this big paper with one of many authors uh, that came out in Science Magazine in the fall, which reported on three billion birds loss. It was a net loss of three billion birds. And so now we're moving that to this next stage of trying to look for the smoking guns. You know, what's what's causing these massive declines? We know it's cats. We know it's habitat loss. We know it's all these things. Mm-hmm. But can we be more? Can we pinpoint these things a bit more? Uh, and I'll just share one small example that's sure. currently got Please. me possessed. There's a species called the yellow-billed cuckoo, which is this really cool bird. It's bigger than a robin, or no, it's not quite bigger than a robin, bigger than a cardinal, between, between the two uh, in size. And it's a migratory bird, so it breeds in the U.S., and then it migrates somewhere. We didn't really knew, know where it went. We knew it went to South America. We didn't know exactly. So this past year, uh, one of my postdocs, Callie Stanley, attached these really small transmitters to their back, uh, that transmit their location up to a satellite, and then the satellite comes back down to us, and so we can sit there and drink our beer and look on the computer and find out where this bird's going throughout its year after it leaves the, the breeding grounds. So they arrive here in, like, May in different places, April and May, depending upon where you are, like Texas, Arizona, Illinois, Tennessee, uh, and we capture them, put these things in their backs, and we watch them and, it, and where they go. And birds from all over the U.S. converge down to this small area in South America uh, at the corner of like Argentina, Paraguay, and Bolivia. And I should, I should have said wow. that populations of yellow-billed cuckoos in the western U.S. have almost totally disappeared, mm-hmm. and their populations <clears throat> have declined by 60 to 70% across the rest of the U.S. So they're just disappearing before our, own, before our eyes. And it turns out that area is called the Grand Chaco. And it's an area that is being decimated for soybean farming. And it's, it's the amount of habitat loss there is really distressing. And so we just discovered this a week or two ago. So now we're starting to really trying to figure out what are we going to do. I think we're going to go on a, an expedition down there in, in the next few months to try to figure out what's happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of farming being done by uh, Mennonites down mm-hmm. there. And, uh, yeah, and it's, it's, it's an issue people there have been working on for, for the last five or six years. Uh, but now we now know that we share species with this area. Mm-hmm. And so my hope is is that we can use the yellow-billed cuckoo as another tool to elevate this issue as a, as a big one for people even in North America uh, that you know says that we need to do something about this. That's quite a migratory distance. I mean, it that's, is. That's yeah. A, yeah. a hell of a long ways. Hell of a long ways. Yeah. And 75% of our species in the U.S., bird species, are migratory. So most of them actually aren't here for most of the year. They're only here for three months. And so we share them with multiple countries. Mm-hmm. Well, the good thing Mennonites are very reasonable people. Maybe they could. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> That's like a no comment to me. Do you know oh, any Mennonites? I, I went to a camp and it was run by, we had Mennonite chefs and cooks. Yeah. Very nice women. They were good, yeah. good cooks. I, I think they are. I think they, they seek out rural areas and they right. seek out nature. But... 
but they also have a fundamental belief that the land needs to be farmed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they also are responsible for massive amounts of deforestation around the world mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. with the goal of, of producing food and, and being sustainable in the human sense, not from a nature ex, uh, Right, sense. yeah, they, they feel like work and toil and that's right. Yeah, the simplicity of life in that, in that way. Right, and yeah. unfortunately, when you look at how much land they've destroyed in places like Mexico and Belize and South America, it's it's quite distressing. Wow. Hmm. wow. I don't talk about it that often, but I used to live in South America and Argentina, actually. So if you need any suggestions <laughs> really? or a translator or anything like that, okay. let me know. We're in, uh, we're in Argentina? I was in Buenos Aires for, oh. about, for about four and a half years. Wow. What were you doing there? Uh, I graduated college, didn't really know what I was going to do next. So I went down there to travel for six months, started in Buenos Aires and didn't leave. On basically. a motorcycle? <clears throat> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah there was a little Che Guevara motorcycle. You know where I'm diaries. going. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm actually a revolutionary now. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, living the dream. That's great. A friend of ours actually just got down there this week, uh, just this morning for a wedding. Oh, oh so, great. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have one more question if we want to. So this is yeah. a little bit a little bit on a tangent here, but I saw on your online on your uh, profile that you're a big, you're an avid fly fisher. Is that, is that true? Yeah. Okay. So these, I talked uh, uh, on a podcast about a month ago, I had a topic on heists and I feel like one of these heists and fly fishing and your bird, th like the whole bird thing really overlap. Do you know, yeah. do you know of uh, Edwin Rist? Uh, he was he was part of a heist. He was about 20 years old, studying at some music music conservatory in the UK, and stole like 200. The feather uh, thief. The feather thief. Yeah. Yeah. Great book. I thought so. You read the book, okay? Yeah. I, I I've read excerpts from it. Um, yeah. But what a, it was just, that was just a, a crazy heist to me that just the amount of like the amount of uh, of coincidence that had to be like okay he's a uh, he's at this conservatory he like maybe is. Uh, has like Asperger's or something like that, so he doesn't really know right from wrong, or at least that's what they argued. Then he's also a master fly tire for salmon flies. Yeah. So, and then just so happened to be in the area where these exotic bird repository, feather repository is. And it's so he crime. steals these bird feathers and then knows immediately who he can sell them to. Yeah. And then everybody online is like, it's like a don't, you know, don't talk to me about it kind of thing. It's kind of hush hush. They're like, you know, yeah, I bought these, but I'm not going to tell you where I got them. Yeah, because there's this you know, collection of people out there that really want these rare bird feathers to tie flies. Right. With. So it's not even just for the fishing. It's like almost the art of the craft of the fly as well. It's totally about the art of the craft of the fly and mm. about having that rare thing. Yeah. And, you know, rarity is really something that people want and love because it's just in the same way that birders want to find that really rare bird. Uh -huh. um, these folks have sort of sought out these really rare feathers yeah. to the point where they will break into a museum and not really value that bird specimen. But these are really like 300, 250 year old yeah. specimens in there yeah. as well. Yeah. It's an incredible story. In fact, This American Life did a really good uh, piece on it too. I'll need to listen to that as well. You should definitely listen to it. We're not yeah. going to, we're going to bleep that out on our podcast. But. <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. No, it's a great book and, and, and uh, uh, fishing in general is a, is a spectacular sport as well but you can do like catch and release it's one I'll of these say. things you yes. can do i don't always do that and i'm yeah. not just a fly fisherman by the way i like okay. like fishing any kind of general. fishing fishing in general yeah yep. very cool yeah. very patient man then very patient man. well yeah. <laughs> you've been very very patient with us today so i appreciate <laughs> yeah. that um you got anything else no i think that's what i had i really enjoyed your book good um, thanks yeah, i really enjoyed yeah, it yeah so it's cat wars the devastating yep. consequences of a cuddly killer yeah feel free to princeton whatever where they can find you online where they can find the book all that kind of stuff yeah you can get it on amazon you can get it on uh, from princeton university press uh, it's, it's available yeah excellent yeah thanks thanks so much my pleasure thanks yeah. guys thanks so much, awesome. Pete. yeah bye-bye